This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. You're listening to Walter Edgar's Journal, and I'm talking with Professor Amy McCandless about the role of women in South Carolina and World War I. Our conversation is a part of the Conversations on South Carolina in World War I, sponsored by the University of South Carolina's College of Arts and Sciences. Why don't we kind of set the scene for everybody before we jump in specifically on your topic of women in World War I, what was South Carolina like 1915, We're talking about a rural society. In fact, South Carolina doesn't become an urban state until the 1970s, and it had a black majority. Um, I think having the, the rural society black majority affects a lot of how the women that we're going to talk about this evening had to operate. Um, So when you think about the typical South Carolina woman in 1916, she was black. Um, The opportunities for employment were largely agricultural worker or domestic worker. Um, For the typical white woman, Again, someone who lived in the country. She may have been a farm worker of some sort. She could have been a tenant farmer. She could have been a sharecropper. In the, if she was in the towns upstate, she was a mill worker. And they had a very small middle class in the, in the cities, in Charleston, in Columbia, in Greenville. And the middle class women were predominantly teachers and nurses. Um, some clerical workers, but really not all that many. South Carolina itself um, was a very different place from what we know now. No interstates. In my part of the state, in the low country, the roads were either sand or if you were really upscale, it could be oyster shells (laughs) pressed out. So when we talk about women traveling all over the state to help in these various camps or visiting their husbands or brothers or friends, understand transportation was not easy. And most people didn't have cars. The towns had public transportation. In fact, out to Camp Jackson, you're going to take a trolley. So we're talking about a situation where getting from point A to point B uh, was quite difficult. And to me, when you look at what these women accomplished, it's pretty impressive given the situation that they had to work under. Well, and the health issues, hookworm was just now being in 1916 was finally under control, which was in some counties as high as 35% of the population was infected with hookworm. Now folks, that's pretty serious. And of course, hookworm, it's because of lack of sanitation. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, one of the re- I'm amazed that Charleston didn't have a higher percentage of hookworm because Charleston had no central sewer system. In the tenements you had, as, and I've seen this in writing, five-story outhouses on the back of how, on the back of them. <laughs> you, had, you had milk cows on lots, unpasteurized milk, TB was a scourge, malaria, and some of the worst malaria wasn't just in Charleston, Orangeburg County had the highest rate of malaria in the state because of the swamps. No screens, no mosquito control. So you, you know, you've, you've got to throw all of that in and disease isn't always a respecter of class or, or status. But it's interesting, the infection, for example, of hookworm was higher in the white population than it was in, in the black, particularly the mill villages. So you've got women who are maybe not well, or they've got family that's not well, and there wasn't a Publix down the street or a Piggly Wiggly where you could get things. I don't want to paint such a picture of a dark world, but you know, speaking of dark, Columbia had finally gotten electricity at the turn of the 20th century. And then we're going to go to war. South Carolina's going to go to war. Our favorite son, Woodrow Wilson, who was reared here in Columbia, he was born in Stanton, Virginia, I know that. But the bed he was birthed in is over there on, in the Woodrow Wilson house. 
they have an armed guard to keep the ladies from Stanton coming down and, <laughs> and going after it. South Carolinians were behind Wilson from the beginning and helped mobilize Southern delegates to get him nominated. I mean, after all, he'd been a college president and governor of New Jersey, and then all of a sudden he comes out of nowhere to get the nomination. And in 1916, he ran on the platform. Keep us out of war. He kept us out <laughs> of war. Six months later, we're there. And so now it's back April to- 6, 1917, the U.S. declares war for good reason. Wilson said this was to be a war to make the world safe for democracy. And I think this is really important to see how it was received in South Carolina because women and men took this seriously. This was something they believed in. This was something they were going to work for. And white as well as black women were dedicated from the first. They were going to, to do what their president had asked. It had brought them together. They were no longer just from Columbia or Charleston or from South Carolina. They were Americans. And I think that's a really key thing that happens because of Wilson. Uh, so black women are nervous because they're feeling like they're not trusted. There's not a role for them to play. And very early, they declare their commitment. And I want to read you, this is from the Columbia Record, April 8th, 1917. Now remember, this is two days after the war has been declared. African-American women put a statement in the Columbia Record, quote, the colored women of this city and state being deeply imbued with a spirit of patriotism and loyalty to their state and country at this time, when our great nation is at war with a very formidable foe, feel it necessary and deem it fitting and proper as patriotic daughters of South Carolina to put ourselves on record now as being willing and ready to protect our country's best interests by organizing now our service when our country calls. We are prepared by education, training, and sympathy to render the same kind of service that any other women will render. And we, as our forefathers, Carney, Crispus, Attux, and others, will see that old glory, our dear old flag, will never touch the ground." Unquote. Well, now, how were these women, these African-American women, allowed to participate? I know what white women were doing. We'll get into that, too. But I think that's the story most people know. They rolled bandages with the Red Cross. They set up basically like a USO, either working with the camps or here in Columbia, almost every church, white and black, had soldiers for Sunday dinner. They had dances properly chaperoned, of course. Were black women able to do the same thing? Um, in many cases, the groups, organizations, were auxiliaries of white organizations. Since everything was segregated with Jim Crow, you don't have integrated women's groups who are working for these various causes. So black women have their own auxiliaries, their own components. Um, Black women cannot, however, participate in the military. And this is very interesting. World War I is the first war where women can serve in the armed forces. Now, you may say, well, I know women who've disguised themselves as men way back to the Revolutionary War and served. But this was the first time that women could serve, and this was in the Naval Reserves, and we'll talk about that in a second. But black women couldn't. White women before could serve as nurses in the armed forces, but never anything besides nurses. In the Navy and the Army, they could be nurses. But this was the first time World War I were where women could serve outside of nursing and be part of the military. Black women couldn't be nurses, 
neither the Army nor the, the Navy would accept black women into their nursing corps. Black women who weren't trained as nurses had to be nurses for the Red Cross. And so you've got these organizations where there's a black Red Cross, or it was called a colored Red Cross. There was a colored YWCA that also employed nurses and, in fact, sent some women, black women, to Europe for the American Expeditionary Forces. Well, one thing I'm hearing is, is the organizations is a lot of the war effort YMCA, YWCA, this is not a government, a government enterprise. And as, as we said, remember, many of these women are, are poor. They're, you know, they're working full-time jobs, and yet they're also doing the things that are helping the soldiers in the various camps that are sent out. And when soldiers, black soldiers, come to, let's say, Fort Jackson in Columbia, where are they going to eat? Where are they going to leave the camp? They set up their own canteens. They set up, they find cars, do carpools to bring the black soldiers to family homes for dinners because they couldn't eat out in a restaurant. Um, they helped house members who were coming to visit white women had set up hostess camps by the, again, the YWCA, but hostess camps did not accept black families coming to visit their families. So you've got a lot of this really local. Well, one thing people don't realize is that black troops were chained, trained at Fort Jackson during World War I in segregated portion of the camp, but they, but they were, and that was something that initially caused a great deal of concern in the white community and among white members of the Congress you're arming black soldiers. You're training them, and you're training them in Columbia. You're training them in Spartanburg. And in fact, one of the roles that was asked of, of one of the auxiliaries, the, the war camp auxiliaries that black women were part of, was they were to make sure that they could keep relations between race relations between the town and the camp um, at an at a friendly level. Mm -hmm. So they're actually given responsibility for what we might say, maintaining um, in, in what was a difficult environment, maintaining law and order. Well, I want to get to the idea of women actually in the armed forces. Okay. Uh, and it was actually in the Navy, was it not? When I first got in touch with Amy, she said, this is what I want to talk about. So she wrote me an essay, a wonderful article. But the Yeomanettes, Yeomanettes, these are women trained they, and they were actually beginning trained in Charleston, were they not? Mm -hmm. These were the first women who served in the armed forces outside of nurses. Um, in 1906, there was a Naval Act. And one of the clauses in this Naval Act said that for the Naval Reserves, you could enlist persons um, who, let me read the particular line, all persons who may be capable of performing specific useful service for coastal defense. These people could serve in the Naval Reserves. And it said all persons. So it didn't say males. And so, um, as you can imagine, um, women are not dumb. And they quickly responded. In fact, um, the first woman was a woman by the name of Loretta. She was not a South Carolinian. A, Loretta Walsh was from Pennsylvania. And she joined the Na Naval Reserves in March of 1916. Now, if you think about this date, she joined the Naval Reserves before the actual declaration of war. And as soon as the declaration of war occurred, you have women in Charleston because the Navy base is told, look, you need manpower. There, you need people to do these sort of jobs. A yeoman was a class, or I guess a ranking in the Navy, that was a petty officer that did clerical duties. And so the feeling was that these women could be yeomen, and it was their, their classification was yeoman F or yeoman female, but they were much more commonly known as yeomanettes. You know, we had suffragists and suffragettes. Well, we had yeomanettes 
they signed up. They enlisted for four-year terms, and they, they trained in Charleston. Um, this was very interesting because, of course, there was no accommodation for them. There were no houses. Um, again, women in the YWCA found places for them to stay, usually with, with families. Um, there were no uniforms for them. Eventually, they decided that these uniforms should be blue or white, and of course, they should be no more than eight inches above your ankle. And, well, who's going to make these uniforms? Well, guess who did make the uniforms? The Yomanets often made their own uniforms. So there was, this was such a new thing that it's just, again, amazing, but there were literally several hundred who were enlisted in Charleston and trained in, at Charleston during the, the what, 19 months of the war. And most of them were trained in Charleston. Okay. Uh, again, one of the little known stories about the, the holy city. Uh, when we talked about health conditions, we didn't talk about Charleston's Notorious. Oh, the red light district. The red now, light district. Columbia had red light district too. And by the way, that, that was one of the things that both the Navy and the Army contacted the city fathers, both in Charleston and Columbia, and they said, look, we have troops coming here. You need to clean up your red light districts. Um, in Columbia, there's this wonderful story where the church ladies offered to um, put up anybody who would convert. In other words, if you would, would change your ways, and sadly, only a couple did. Um, but they closed the red light districts, and of course, that did not work because um, the ladies moved to different parts of town. But that, that's, that is an issue, not just in, in Charleston and Columbia. I know. But in World War II as well as World War I. Yeah, World War II, it really got, that, that's another story. Char Char Charleston <laughs> almost got banned as a right. city because they couldn't control things. That particular incident is why we had a street changed here in Columbia. Uh, Park Street got its name because it used to be called Gates after General Horatio Gates, but that was the heart of the red light district <laughs> down by the uh, railroad stations. And then they developed the area, Elmwood, and proper ladies didn't, because if you said you were going to Gates Street, a man was going to the red light district. And so these proper Victorian ladies out there by the then old fairgrounds said, well, we can't have a Gates Street out here in Elmwood. It's got to be changed. And so it was changed to Park Street. So uh, one of those footnotes of local history. You mentioned the hostess houses. Again, the government today, if you go to Fort Jackson, if, you're, you're, if your soldier son's being, and daughter being trained there, as a place for you to stay, that kind of thing. The government didn't provide that in those days. And particularly when you're looking at Camp Wadsworth, most of the units that were trained there for overseas were from up north. There were Northern National Guard units. Uh, actually, rather elite National Guard mm -hmm. units. Some of them came down in their own railroad cars. But where are the families going to stay? So the host. This is the job of the hostess, or they take up. The the YWCA was the sponsor of what were called hostess centers, um, and very interesting. The ones at Fort Sevier in Greenville, and Wads Wadsworth in Spartanburg, and Fort Jackson in Columbia were designed by a woman architect by the name of Faye Kellogg, and they were designed to look like southern bungalows so that wives, girlfriends, family members coming to visit their men in the camp would feel at home. And they had, not only did they have accommodations for them, because remember, there are no hotels. There aren't hotels in Columbia or in Charleston to well, come well, to these camps. Well, there are, but... Uh single woman is not supposed to travel to a hotel. Well, was there a hotel in Columbia? That's interesting, because oh. Francis Marion in the Charleston isn't built till after I mean, no, World there, War there I. Were, there were, there were, uh, there were guest houses. The great Charleston hotels were pretty much flea bags by this time. Right. Uh, <laughs> but even so, a, a single woman didn't travel alone. I mean, that's not just, in, that, that's part of American culture. And the camps were quite outside the city center, too. Yeah. 
Um, so once you got there, having these hostess centers right near the camp was very helpful. And they had, besides the the overnight accommodations, they had canteens and cafeterias, and women, local women, again, volunteered, provided the food that was sold there. And my favorite story is from, from Greenville, um, where one of the women who provided foods for the cafeteria, she made sandwiches, was a woman by the name of Mrs. Harry C. Duke. And Mrs. Duke had a wonderful secret recipe for mayonnaise. And the soldiers loved her sandwich. And as a consequence, she develops it commercially after the war. But that was one of the great sort of entrepreneurial stories that comes out of the, the, the hostess centers. So... The government's training people, but everything else that folks take for granted now at any training base, it didn't really exist. I mean, the troops were in tents, and that was it. And if they wanted to go to a canteen or to get a candy bar, it had to be provided by Mrs. Duke and other folks. In terms of what the women might have carried on after the war, and I don't want to do that too much because I'm hoping that Dean Ford's going to fund next year South Carolina between the wars. <laughs> but the women who were working in factories, we think of Rosie the Riveter in, in World War II, but in Charleston and on the Navy base, many of the mechanical kind of jobs, the assembly line jobs, were done by women. So this is not a World War II phenomenon. It happens in South Carolina in World War I. Although I guess I would argue um, in Charleston on the Navy base, more than Rosie the Riveter, it was maybe Sally Sue the Seamstress, because I made up that name, y'all. Um, the Naval base in Charleston had the only factory for making Navy uniforms, so it manufactured all the Navy uniforms. Now, obviously, once we're in the war, we need a lot more uniforms, and most of the employees were women. And it was a very good salary. I mean, it's the same sort of reason so many women were attracted to, in World War II, to the, to the, the base and the ship industry, is that they paid 15 to $25 a week. And remember, that's an incredibly high um, wage for women in this particular period. Um, and the conditions were not very good, but women flocked to these jobs. Uh, initially, the ad said, for white women only. But a number of black leaders in Charleston came and they said, look, if you don't open these positions to black women, you're going to lose blacks from the city. They're going to go someplace else where they can get better opportunities. And already the city fathers were very concerned because men are being drafted and you're, you're losing um, your black population who are going off to war, who are doing the sort of um, jobs that you didn't know who was going to do these jobs after they left. And so they managed to negotiate that 200, some 250 women, black women, also got to have these factory jobs. Mm -hmm. And again, it was an extraordinary opportunity for women who had worked as domestics or farm workers. And you know, perhaps if they got $1 a week, they were lucky. Well, I, I was going to say, not just for women, though, but $25 a week in South Carolina for anybody, regardless of color, was a handsome wage. And they were so enticed by that, that despite it wasn't great working conditions. I mean, it was a 10-hour week. Um, you mentioned before there were any screens. Um, there apparently were no bathrooms either. I'm not sure how they worked that out. Um, but no fans. And remember, you're working in Charleston in the, in the summer. They did not work under the best conditions. Are, are, it's a 10-hour day. Is that a six-day week, not working on Sunday? Yes, that's, so that's yeah. a, <laughs> a long week, too. Yeah. But it was, you know, it was an opportunity for them. Uh, what's happening in South Carolina, the, st the things that you have been able to pull out are, are really brand new. Like I say, we knew about the Red Cross. People knew about this. The Yeomanettes was a real eye-opener. <laughs> I, I, not only because it happened in South Carolina, but 
having been in the military, you only start beginning to talk about women in the military with World War II. Mm -hmm. You don't think about it coming in, in uh, World War I. Now, you mentioned the draft, and that's one of the chapters in South Carolina history that some people don't want to talk about too much because South Carolina had the highest rejection rate for the draft of any state in the Union because of health and lack of education. But disease was, was part of it. We mentioned hookworm, pellagra, the diseases that everybody had, but particularly the men who were being, were being drafted. And the rejection rate was high. And I guess I, would, I think that was an incentive for a number of individuals to work for improved education. It's embarrassing when you've got such a high literacy rate and your people are being rejected because they can't read a simple sentence. Will Lou Gray um, had worked in Lawrence County before the war in establishing adult education, adult camps. And I think just the whole issue of the, the draft and people being rejected led progressives, white and black, to push for more adult education. And she manages to get the state to pass legislation that establishes statewide adult education. And again, this is something that the progressives have been working for earlier, and it's not until the war that they are able to get the, the state to accept that. Um, in Charleston, you have a movement by black men and women. Um, my, my favorite one involved in this is Septima Poinsett Clark, who becomes very prominent later on in the civil rights movement in Charleston. And this was to get black teachers in the African-American schools of Charleston. And that may seem strange to you, knowing that the schools were segregated, but the Charleston law said that they had to have white teachers. And so black teachers had to go into the sort of rural areas. They couldn't actually teach in Peninsula Charleston. And the argument was that, well, the blacks really didn't want black teachers. They really wanted white teachers because they were better. And so Septima Clark, who was a, a young um, teacher, and she was a member of the USO, again, the black USO, um, went from door to door collecting petitions to refute the statement that black parents didn't want black teachers for their school. She collected 20,000 signatures. And as a result, the black teachers were allowed to teach in Charleston County schools. And she would again go on to be later an activist, but it was this World War I issue of, the, of education that really spurred her activism. Mm -hmm. um, higher education, too. You have colleges throughout the state. Your place of employment. Oh, yes. <laughs> the College of Charleston. The uh, College of Charleston um, was an all-male institution. And for years, the ladies in Charleston had But, had but, not, but now, why petition. wouldn't they let the ladies come? Because, as the student body said in 1903, we believe that the co-education, the admission of women, would destroy the tone of robust manliness <laughs> that we believe to be even more important than scholarship, unquote. <laughs> And um, yes, so <laughs> there was uh, not great support for, for co-education. And the ladies had, oh, for, really for years, had, kept, had petitioned the president, who was pre President Harrison Randolph, to allow them to at least take classes at the college. And when the war broke out, the head of the women's club, a woman by the name of Carrie Pollitzer, went to see the president again. And she said basically very similar to what the African-American woman had said in the, their piece to the Columbia Record. Look, it's a time of war. There's ways that we can help. And you know, if we have this education, we can help make a difference. Randolph didn't think that was a good idea. And he, he said, you know, basically, Come back later, and we'll see. He told her to go roll bandages and, yes, and yes. knit socks. To, to do the volunteer work that women should be doing. Well, that fall, by the fall of 1917, 
enrollment had started to go down. In fact, it had declined precipitately. And as the semester, spring semester in 1918 began, um, there weren't very many people on campus. And so President Randolph called back um, Ms. Pollitzer and said, you know, maybe we should reconsider this. And, and I, I have to read his statement because I do like this. Uh, yes. He wrote the Women's Club, quote, our country is at war. A world of new conditions surrounds us and is to be met and reckoned with. Women on all sides are called upon to work of a sort that has not been open to them before. I should not feel that I was doing all that is given me at this time of national crisis if I left any stone unturned in an effort to provide for the women of Charleston the higher training which they will more than ever need for the increasing demands which are being made upon them. And I have become convinced that the only practical solution of this problem is to extend to women on the same terms as they now apply to men all the advantages the College of Charleston offers. Now, his patriotism notwithstanding, the fact that there's no money in the college coffers seemed to have been a, a little bit quite a bit of um, impact on his decision. But you have the same thing happening in Columbia, the University of South Carolina. There are more and more women who want to apply. There's more and more spaces um, because the campus is, again, men are going into the services. But there weren't women's dorms. Yes, that's the issue. So they, there, they, were, there were women on campus from the 1890s, but there were no women's dorms on campus. And so where are you going to put these women who want to come? Well, the administration says, look, we have empty dorms because, of course, the men have gone off to war. Maybe we should convert one of these dorms. The trustees hear this argument, and they're horrified. Women don't belong in dormitories. <laughs> um, and they said, well, in fact, until the state makes provision for them, we shouldn't encourage them to come at all. And it was a wonderful sort of catch-22 situation. Um, there's no dormitories for them, so they really shouldn't come. But we don't really want to build dormitories because they don't belong in dormitories. Well, encouraged or not, they came. Um, and they found, again, they found places to stay in, throughout the community. And it's not till, what, 1923 that they decide to build this dormitory. It's opened in 1924, and they hire the first dean of women, who's the first women faculty member. So again, but it's, it's the war that creates this impetus. Um, Clemson, Clemson does not have any women students. In fact, it doesn't until the 1950s, I think. But Clemson hires its first three women faculty members in the fall of 1918. Again, for the same reason, there's a, a manpower shortage. And so the, the opportunities created by the war in the cases of higher education, and I, I guess I would argue for K through 12 as well, continue as a consequence. Well, I want to go back to one of the real characters of South Carolina history, and that's Dr. Will Lou Gray. There are people in this room who knew Dr. Will Lou Gray. She was very convincing, <laughs> not just in 1918, but I can remember being over in the legislature, in the General Assembly, in the lobby, and the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee saw her coming, and he told his clerk, give Dr. Gray, whatever she wants, I just don't want to talk to her. <laughs> and the opportunity schools are the result of what she started in, in World War I. So the one area where there, the war doesn't seem to have had an impact is on the idea of women's suffrage. Now, you mentioned Ms. Pollitzer, who was very much involved in the suffrage movement. But the suffrage movement in South Carolina, there was some disconnect with the national organization? Well, I think the, the real problem for suffrage in South Carolina was white supremacy. The issue was that if you argued 
that under terms of justice or equality, that women should have the vote, why can't you use the same argument to enfranchise African Americans? And so this, this whole issue, even the suffragettes, um, suffragists and suffragettes, tended to be a white-only institution. They kind of saw African American suffrage as something that would hurt their cause, and so they these were very much segregated institutions. Nationwide, of course, the argument is that World War I helped bring about the 19th Amendment because of the women's contributions to the war effort. And it is interesting that the Equal Suffrage Leagues, particularly in Columbia and Charleston, are very active in providing assistance to all sorts of various needs of the community during the war. The Equal Suffrage League in Columbia ran a cannery, and that was here on Lady Street in Columbia. And the story is that in 1918, they canned 18,000 quarts of fruits and vegetables. And they provided, they sold these um, fruits and vegetables to the Baptist Hospital, to the university, to, to Fort Jackson. Um, so clearly, these were women who had proved their service mm-hmm. to their, their nation. In Charleston, the Equal Suffrage League was led by Susan Pringle Frost. She was the president at the time. And she and another one of the Pulitzer sisters um, organized a suffrage campaign in the summer of 1917, where they went, from again, through the downtown, they had little cards, and they wanted people to sign that they pledged to give democracy real by giving it the vote to women, so that they linked together women, war, and democracy. And that really, they should give women the vote in this country before they worried about democracy somewhere else. They later on. How did, the, how, did, how did the News and Courier react to that campaign? Not, not well. Um, <laughs> and they really thought that these women were not behaving like ladies, and this was that they needed to concentrate on fighting for the war effort and not be so selfish and looking at their own issues. Um, Susan Pringle Frost and the Pulitzer Sisters, in fact, didn't think that the. Equal Suffrage League went far enough, and they eventually did align themselves with the more radical um, National Women's Party of Alice Paul, and they wrote letters, constant letters, to South Carolina Senate senators, Cottonette Smith, Ben Tillman, as you can imagine, neither of them really very enthusiastic about women's suffrage. And later, when Tillman dies, his successor, Pollock, who actually does vote once in favor of women's suffrage, but they got he was not reelected, but they're they're doing this campaign to try to convince South Carolina to support the women's suffrage amendment. They also go to D.C. and if you remember the National Women's Party, um, even though Wilson comes out in favor of women's suffrage, it's again well you know let's cons- do the war effort first and put this to the side. And so you had women who were chaining themselves to the White House fence, getting arrested, going on hunger strikes. And Susan Pringle Frost and Anita Pollitzer from Charleston go up to Washington. They chain themselves to the the fence. Yes. But Anita Pollitzer says in her letter, she's so disappointed she doesn't get arrested. (laughs) Um, So you you did have, they were very small minority, even of the, the suffrage movement in Charleston, which was a small majority of the, the population. Well, your, your mentioning of the canneries jogged my memory, and that is the winter of 1918 was one of the worst winters. We think this one's bad. <laughs> it's nothing compared to what happened in 1918. And again, remember, no central heat for most people, no indoor plumbing, but food was scarce, coal was rationed, making do, didn't they alternate the days? Yes, there were, there were heatless days, there were meatless days, and there were wheatless days. So, you know, for, the, for women on the home front, you're trying to feed a family, you're trying to keep them warm under 
incredibly difficult situation. And then this is compounded by the, the flu, which is actually, we call it the Spanish flu. It wasn't really the Spanish flu. It probably started in an army camp in the United States. But the flu hits in October 1918. And you have, again, these same women's organizations that have been working in the camp organized to deal with the communities. The, the, the Red Cross has nurses that look at different areas. There's a women's motor corps that brings food to families that aren't able to leave because of the flu. And so you have the, the kind of community coming together, the sort of organizations, the volunteer organizations that were designed to help meet the needs of the war now are actually helping South Carolina deal with the consequences of a, a pretty horrible influenza outbreak. Well, they actually referred to it in, in the public health records as a pandemic. But again, what I'm hearing is it's volunteer organizations, but the backbone of most of these are the women who are, who in Charleston had divided the city up and took care of the public health. Well, mm-hmm. these women had their sector to check on folks, whether they were sick or what they needed. Again, an untold story. Yeah, we've got a pretty good group of, of ancestors. <laughs> I'm just thinking about what the war come when the war does come to a close. Of course, you've got the, the epidemic. This is a story you probably don't know. We all, Everybody t- talked about in World War I. How can you keep them down on the farm after they've mm-hmm. seen Paris? There was a young woman from Sally, South Carolina, Miss Emma Sally. Her sister was Blanche. She married Mayor Rhett in Charleston and her other sister married the mayor of Columbia. She joined the Red Cross, and all the boys didn't come home in uniform as soon as the war was over. American troops were part of the Army of Occupation after World War I, and Emma uh, was a Red Cross. They operated, then the Red Cross had canteens, R&R centers, and that kind of thing, and she, she stayed in Europe for three years after the war. And the whole operation, yes, there was a man in charge, but the women ran the canteens, they ran the R&R centers, there were those who were nurses. We've got our diaries, and you keep thinking, this young woman from Sally, South Carolina, how is she ever going to go back to Sally? She didn't right away. <laughs> um, she traveled a while afterwards because her world had been, she'd gone to college, she'd gone to Winthrop, but her world was expanded beyond the state of South Carolina. And I I think that probably was true for others as well. And you do have, in a sense, in a a sadder consequence, is that many African Americans leave the state. Part of it, of course, is the economic times that, as the bow weevil comes, but still there are many who have seen a different life. And they, you have... African-American emigration from the state so that by 1923, South Carolina no longer has a black majority. Well, you also have a white exodus as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And our friends in geography who've traced that sort of thing, the white exodus was south and west going all the way to California. The African-American exodus followed the major railroad lines to Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, New York, so forth. In the 1920s, there were more African-Americans from South Carolina living in places like Buffalo than there were in Orangeburg. Not necessarily because of the war, but the war did cause disruption and changes of attitudes. And you see um, the phrase seeds of change used by, I think Fritz Hamer uses it in his essay on World War I. John Hammond Moore uses the phrase that there were seeds for change, that people were going back to Wilson's uh, war to make the world safe for democracy. And people were converted by what this phrase meant. And so you have the hope for a, a more egalitarian, a more democratic society. Um, it takes a while to, to come about. Um, we have to go through the Depression first, <laughs> World War II perhaps the civil rights and women's movement, but the seeds are there. World War I has, one, brought South Carolina back, in a sense, to the nation. 
It's introduced people who were in many ways very isolated in their little communities to a wider world. And I think it gave a lot of people confidence. And certainly for the, these women that I look, you know, looked at their stories, I mean, you look at what they've done, their organizational abilities, their accomplishments, and it certainly made them think that they could do more. You know, the women's club movement had already started, but certainly the roles they undertook in World War One that greatly expanded in both the African-American and the, the white communities. But now we've talked about women being mobilized, but some women got a big kick out of the war. You've got a wonderful quote, I think. Oh, yes. Um, Margaret Devereaux from Columbia did her memoirs in 1970, and she said, it was a wonderful war. Um, and it was the best thing that really ever happened to Columbia. And what she meant is there was a, you know, a, there were dances and there were social activities, and she had a great time. And I think there were people who, they did enjoy this. This was a chance. You met new people. You you were out. And, you know, again, this the excitement of what it meant to to leave the sort of day-to-day doldrums and be involved in what seemed like a greater cause. Well, I think certainly the, the impact, if you think of how, how folks felt about that war, look at the building that's, that's on the corner of Pendleton and Sumter Street, the World War I Memorial Building, uh, erected as a temple of democracy. The second floor of that was, it really looked like a religious sanctuary. Now, some of the quotations around the outside of the building might strike us as a little bit strange. One of them is, they were glad to die. And a number of young men from South Carolina did. But that that building was probably the most magnificent building erected by the state of South Carolina in the 1920s. Oh, you know, there was one group that we didn't talk about and that was the 371st Division, and that was the African-American division that was trained at Fort Jackson and was sent to France, and they fought under, the, under a French general. And so our, our African-American women are not only letters with them, but they're organizing a victory parade when they come back to, to Columbia, because these, these were most black troops were not put on the front line. They were doing back service work, but the, the 371st actually saw action. And they were so, the French general who coordinated them was so impressed by their ability that they were all awarded medals. Um, and some of them the very highest medal that the French could offer their and I'm not very good at the French word for the different crosses, but they had proven themselves as, as fantastic soldiers. And so the women in Colombia were really excited about help, helping to organize and bring them back and to, to say, here were people who did fight to make the world safer democracy. There's one group of women we, we really haven't gotten into, and it's because not much work has been done. And we talk about everybody wanted to follow Woodrow Wilson and go to war, but South Carolina had a very large German-American population. On the very day that there was a pro-war rally in Columbia, there was a German Bund rally in Lexington. We still had German-language newspaper in Charleston, which was shut down during the war. There were German-speaking Lutheran pastors. In fact, some churches required their pastors to be able to preach in German at least once or twice a year. Horace Harmon, who had the Lexington County Museum, used to talk about the changing in cooking habits that the Germ- many of the German folk rural in Lexington County had these big outside ovens, and those disappeared with the war. And whether it was modern technology or the fact that this was identified specifically with German culture. And remember that the Irish community in Charleston was Mm -hmm. not very happy about the war either, because help the English, you know, newspaper that was owned by Mr. Grace was Mm -hmm. shut down as seditious because he opposed America joining and helping the dastardly English in 
in the war. So particularly those German-American women, that's a story that has not been explored. You've got to add another layer. Mm -hmm. They're in the white community, but they're another part of the other. That's your next project. I'll just give it to you right now. <laughs> Any last comments you'd like to make about women, women in the war? Well, I, I think that, that women clearly were affected by Wilson's words, and they not only heard them, but they lived them. Okay. Amy McCandless, I want to thank you for being with us here tonight. And folks, we'll see you next thank week. Thank you. This is Walter Redker, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was great having longtime friend and colleague Amy McCandless as part of this conversation on the role of South Carolina in World War I. Amy brought to my attention and to the audience at the university many things about what women did in World War I that have not been well known. One was, there wasn't a Rosie the Riveter, but there was a Rosie the Seamstress because most of the Navy uniforms were made at the naval base in Charleston, South Carolina. And the fact that women formed auxiliaries, as they were called, at the major bases, training bases in South Carolina that basically performed USO functions for the tens of thousands of men who trained at Camp Wadsworth, Camp Severe, and Camp Jackson. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.